really good investors don't look back. They, they, they have a knowledge of the past, but they are forward-looking and they are adaptive and they don't adhere unprofitably to ideas that have served them well. It is part two of our interview with James Grant, the influential editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Funding provided by Clearbridge Investments, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Baird, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. This week we are presenting the second part of our in-depth interview with financial thought leader and historian James Grant. A regular guest on WealthTrack, Grant is marking the 40th anniversary of his influential Grant's Interest Rate Observer, a twice-monthly self-described independent value-oriented and contrary-minded journal of the financial markets. As he pointed out in the foreword of his anthology of 40 years of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, he has opined on booms and busts, corporate finance with a spotlight on General Electric Company, a multi-decade grants bet noir, real estate and inflation, topics like modern monetary theory, the evolution of central banking, or I should rather say the retrogression of central banking, the substitution of the PhD standard for the gold standard, not my idea of progress. Grant rightly toots his own horn in pointing out that highlights include prescient analyses of both ends of the 2007-09 credit cum mortgage crisis and insightful warnings on the perils inherent in special purpose acquisition companies, aka SPACs, cryptocurrencies, and especially long suppressed interest rates. He points out a glaring error too, the signal failure to comprehend the duration and power of the greatest bull bond market in history, which is where I picked up our conversation the power and duration of the decline in interest rates from the early 80s until 2022. What lessons did he learn from it? We're, we're in the interest rate observation business here at Grants, and what I did not observe uh, was the, uh, uh, the dawn of the greatest bond bull market in history. We, you know, we had, we, from time to time, we'd say, ah, this looks interesting. Uh, 1987, yields got to 10% again. Yes, but it was, those are... Uh, most uh, exceptional uh, moments of understanding for what was basically a great big swing and miss over the, about this this epical event. So what I've learned is uh, is uh, is not to be so sure. It's come to me, of course, over the course of many years. Uh, the future is a closed book. There is uh, no tuition higher in the field of education than the tuition you pay in investing for a holding too tight. Uh, to an opinion that is merely an opinion. What I've discovered is that you have to uh, not just know that the future is a closed book, uh, but live with that humility and not dig in. And uh, it's not to say you can't have convictions, but you have to understand that, uh, uh, that uh, conviction is, uh, uh, is not necessarily for life. And uh, you have to take something away from the market itself. Now, um, when interest rates got to two and one and zero, um, it doesn't mean that uh, a kind of a, a gold standard minded, uh, admittedly retrograde financial solvency uh, champion like myself had to go along with that. But I had to recognize that the world was one of improvisational central banking fiat currency. Then to 
to see and to understand another great truth was that things can go on for a long time. Mm -hmm. Even the indefensive. I remember that when the, the first trillion dollars of uh, zero, of negative yielding bonds flashed on the Bloomberg Street, a trillion dollars in bonds that pay you less than nothing? What? <laughs> Crazy. Exactly. This can't be. It was like a, there's a business in bottled water. It's, it's on the tap for free. <laughs> But, uh, the, but the, um, uh, the idea of a negative yielding bond, uh, it was crazy at uh, $1 trillion. It was inexplicable at $2 trillion. It was farcical at $3 trillion. And then, of course, people got to kind of get into it. Yeah, it's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> and they rationalize all the way up to $16 trillion. You know, in a way, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, this business about being in markets and thinking about them and investing in them and writing in them is a way like aging, in that it's a, it's a process of acceptance and resistance. Uh, you resist such insults on one's body and mind as one can, but you accept with the good graces uh, the inevitable part of it as well. So I think it's a little bit like markets, right? You, you don't fight the inevitable or what seems at length to have been the inevitable, uh, but uh, you uh, also uh, try to stick up for what you can fix. 40 years of tracking the Fed as well. You still have a good head of hair, but I'm sure you've torn some of your hair <laughs> out. Yeah, you started with Volcker and then Greenspan and then Bernanke and you know now Jerome Powell. Um, so the evolution, what you call the retrogression of, the, of central banks, um, what have you learned from from that experience and watching how they've become more and more powerful and kind of central on, in their influence on the financial markets. Well, I've learned one thing is I don't read grants. And I told them exactly how to run their business. They seem not to mm -hmm. be listening. Sometimes grants reminds me of the Chicago Tribune in the era of the Purple Gang and the gang warfare of the 20s during the Prohibition. The, the Chicago Tribune would thunder at these guys and the it was good copy, and the, the gangsters really didn't listen to the pleas of good government and peace and quiet in the city of Chicago. And I, it's a little bit like that with grants and the Fed. We stand for good money and money that holds mm -hmm. its value. We stand for interest rates discovered in the marketplace and not suppressed or manipulated from on high. And we stand for humility and circumspection in the matter of financial modeling and uh, stargazing. So this, the Federal Reserve has ignored us with respect to financial modeling. They hew to these recondite mathematical constructions that uh, served them so well in 2007 and 2008. <laughs> and then again, in the uh, transitory inflation era of um, 2020 and 21. I am a little bit reluctant to say that I've wasted about 4 million words. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it seems a lot of typing for naught, but I, I hope that um, one of these days, I know perhaps I should send them uh, this 40th anniversary anthology and invite them to uh, reconsider, and perhaps in a, in a time of uh, introspection and prayer, what they might consider for the next 40 years. I can't say we've had much direct influence on the Fed, but we have, in a way, um, I guess we're like a, a medieval monks keeping alive, you know, book learning. Keeping, keeping alive the, <laughs> the doctrines of yesteryear. You know, you know the funny things, Consuelo, is that the, uh, 
the Fed is the last bastion of uh, a law that went out of the books in 1935, which holds, which held that the stockholders of a bank are themselves personally responsible for the solvency of the banks that they which they hold a fraction. So that went out of the books in 1935. However, right. the the commercial banks that own shares in the local Federal Reserve Bank are themselves responsible for the solvency of the Federal Reserve Banks, little known fact. And the, and the reserve banks themselves are underwater on a technical basis. If they, if under GAAP, they'd be broke because they are earning at 2% and paying 5%. That's their business model now. They pay these interest rates out to the, their depositors. They, so this is a slightly uh, intricate uh, sideline. But... But, uh, but it's distressing nonetheless. And I mean, how will that end? What? It'll end in the Fed ignoring the law as they have been doing. The, you know, the, the, right. treas the Treasury is bearing these, these, very real, these very real losses. The Fed is racking mm -hmm. up uh, for its own financial operations. But the commercial banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, like Citibank, like all the regionals, they, these banks ought to be ponying up in proportion to their holdings of Federal Reserve stock. And nobody says, Alex Pollack has said a word about it. He's a, he's a, a, a very well-regarded thinker about uh, uh, monetary matters. He used to run a uh, Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago and has been in the, uh, in the uh, Washington uh, think tank business since then. Anyway, I'm getting away from the question, Consuelo. So what does Grant stand for? We stand for uh, personal responsibility for financial outcomes. We stand for old-fashioned fiduciary responsibility. We stand for uh, uh, circumspection. And we stand for buying low and selling high. That's a, that, and sound money, of course. That's, a, that's our book of business. So uh, has the world been listening? Well, to a degree, I, I like to think. But um, the Fed is not among those who has. I have not yet gotten a call from Ben S. Bernanke, PhD, for example, asking if we could reconsider some of the things that each of us said in 2007. <laughs> that has calls and come in. <laughs> but. So, Jim, good money. So where is good money to be found? Is it basically gold? Well, gold is a kind of legacy monetary asset, gold and silver, I suppose, alike. And of course, there are other materials that have uh, done duty as, as base money. So all these, these currencies are creations of governments, and they are printed on rapid-fire uh, computers and uh, printing operations. So they, the, the question is, which is the less disreputable or the least disreputable of the fiat currencies out there in the mm -hmm. world now likes dollars, mm -hmm. and one respects that. Again, speaking of observing things in the marketplace, so the dollar exchange rate has been very strong against other weaker fiat currencies. But to me, it's possible for every individual watching the show to be on his or her own monetary standard, right? The, mm -hmm. it, it's one of the nice things about America since 1975 is that you are allowed to buy gold. You were not allowed to until, until then, it's just from 1933 to So you can, if you want, be on your own gold standard, your own silver standard. You can, you can lay in some of these metals against the day when uh, the world begins to revalue them. It's already seemed to be happening in, in, at, at the margin. Gold is knocking on the door of $2,000 now again. Mm -hmm. So this is a world, uh, fortunately for us in America, it's a world still of choice. And you can kind of build your own monetary base, your own monetary portfolio. You can have your choice of currencies. You like the euro. You shouldn't. <laughs> you could. So, so you, you can 
all of us by habit and convenience hold dollars. That's our currency. But you, you can, if you think it through and think there's an alternative, you can do that. That's a nice thing about uh, contemporary uh, financial life. Right. And Jim, you know, you've been accused of being a bear, but as, as you've said many times that you really, you're not a bear, you're a skeptic. In every issue of grants, you usually have a, you know, a, a buy recommendation and a, a sell or a short recommendation. Yeah. I'm a, um, a yes, but guy in a gee whiz world. I mean, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. often bearish and I like it when things go down because I'm a value minded investor. I like it when interest rates go up because that's, you know, that's a, uh, interest on your savings. I like it when stocks go down because you can buy more of them. And uh, I'm certainly deeply skeptical. We were deeply skeptical in 2009 of the proposition that, that things would never come back. We had a nice call on credit and banking stocks mm -hmm. in early 2009. So, but but I, think, I think I've made this bed of bearishness and I am happy to, uh, to lie in it. I'm a, I'm a bearish personality, I guess, or a, or a skeptical one. I'm a critical personality, so I don't mind. <laughs> They say gold bug, sure, yeah. I'm, I'm, I prefer gold bullets, more dignified, but gold bug will do. Value investing, uh, you know, you, you were an editor of the sixth edition of security analysis, uh, the, you know, Graham and Dodd classic. Uh, so, you know, value investing is, has been undervalued versus growth investing. So what is, what's your current thought about the, that as a value growth, the gap between those two schools. It's, it's kind of flummoxing because the, uh, the, the proposition that it's better to buy something that's cheap than not is, is, is out of favor. Uh, the equal weighted S&P is, is a different proposition than that S&P, which includes seven stocks, names of which we needn't mention because everyone knows them. And they account for more than 100% of the rise in the Standard Poor's 500 this year. Uh, in Europe as well, there are many, many stocks that are uh, castaways. I've always been drawn to the runs of the litter, you know, and to the, <laughs> and, and to the cast off things. And I, I, I enjoy um, identifying some of these and um, we look for them at grants. And, and sometimes they don't work out because uh, they're not in an index. You, have, you kind of have to be in an index these days. Perhaps this is a, a wan hope, but... Uh, to your point, yes, uh, value investing has become rather a laugh line in the world. And, and one concedes, as I have tried to concede with more frequency as I age, I concede that uh, sometimes things change, you know, and, and value investing uh, might just not be the thing for a while. But um, I, I can't actually process the notion that uh, the cheap things will always be out of fashion. And... Uh, so we keep on looking for them, and sometimes uh, buy low and sell high. It's not a bad way to approach the world. <laughs> Has the excess speculation that you have warned grants to interest rate observer readers about, I mean, you know, the SPACs and the cryptocurrencies and various um, other, you know, instruments, have, have they been wrung out of the market? Oh, no. Those, those things, it's still a highly speculative market. This, this, uh, this one-day option, this 24-hour option business. This is the biggest yeah. growth area of equity options is options that expire in 24 hours. The uh, inflows into the long-dated treasury ETF are immense. So people are trying to buy those dips. And, uh, you know, private credit, everyone has to be in private credit. You can get, did you know, Consuelo, you get 10% if you invest in a fund with people who want 
who aren't audited by the, the examiners, the, all of the, uh, the trend-following institutions uh, are in uh, private credit as they have before been in uh, venture capital and uh, private equity. So it's, it's still a marketplace to me rife with thoughtless trend-following and with uh, chasing after the latest shiny object, whether it be SPACs or crypto or private credit or what have you. Jim, you've got very loyal readers among uh, some top investors. So who do you follow? I know a Grant's whisperer. A Grant's yes. whisperer. His name is Paul J. Isaac. Mm -hmm. And he runs something called Arbiter Partners. Now, I'm talking my book because he is a director of Grant's. And, but you asked me because who I listen to. Who am I listening to? Yes. And I listen to Paul Isaac. If it were, I, I know we could publish without Paul. I'm certain of that. But I think it would be less frequently and the magazine would be thinner. So, <laughs> But why do you listen to it? What, what, what is because it? Because he has an encyclopedic knowledge. I once did, I dedicated one of my books to, to Paul J. Isaac Kama, who somehow knows everything. And he's one of these uh, Wall Street, uh, the best of the Wall Street intellect is somebody who reads everything and forgets nothing. I'm looking at one, I think, on, in, in well, you, I, James Grant. So I, I do some of the forgetting for, for both Paul and me. But uh, so uh, without um, actually um, uh, canonizing Paul while he's still living, I don't want to do that. But I, I do want to uh, pay uh, homage to somebody who is, uh, to whom I listen and to whose intellect and analytical skill and uh, judgment I, I deeply respect. Is there, uh, you know, aside from security analysis um, and the intelligent investor, I mean, is there like a must-read in investment book or a book to, so that we can understand the world of finance? There's one that just out, Consuelo, and it's a it's a funny, fun read, and it's called Number Go Up. Number by, Go Up okay. by Zeke. Foe. He spells it F-A-U-X, pronounces it Fox. It's a story of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried and crypto. And, uh, and Zeke is a, uh, he, he passes himself off in the book as kind of an ingenuous reporter, not knowing anything, but, uh, uh, but uh, eyes wide open, wanting to know who this genius is. Right. <laughs> it's a story of his quest uh, or his safari uh, for crypto. It takes him all over the world. And uh, he thinks it's all a bunch of baloney. <laughs> and it's, it's such a refreshing journalistic view of one particular aspect of the mania. Of I think people look back on this time in finance and say, wow, <laughs> it's incredible the things that people have said and done with money. You talk to, um, you're read by a lot of great investors. So it, is, there, is there one characteristic that you think that they all share that makes, I mean, what makes a truly successful long-term investor? I think the quality of adaptability is one. Seth Klarman hates publicity, but he's gonna have to deal with this, all right? So he got into the uh, business in the early 80s, and I don't think he was ever a doctrinaire value investor, but, but right. you know, over the years I've watched him and, and he has adapted to different business models. You know, so it might not be useful in a time of rapid technological change, says Seth, to be too rigidly adherent to the idea of a balance sheet that is showing more cash than debt. You know, the testament of a 
of a deeply valued security was what was showing net cash, valued in the market perhaps at less than that net cash. No, that's not the model anymore. That was the market model of Graham and Dodd in 1940. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the, the very best investors, Seth being one, take the canon of yesteryear, that is a security analysis by Benjamin Graham and David L. Dot. Take that canon and take from it the things that are true and perhaps will always be true, and yet see things that have changed and not regret in any sort of nostalgic way, the change that these, a lot of these guys are, I wouldn't call Seth exactly cold blood, but these people don't look back. The really good investors don't look back. They, they, they have a knowledge of the past, but they are forward looking and they are adaptive and they don't adhere unprofitably to ideas that have served them well. They're the, la the least nostalgic or the least sentimental people in the world with respect to my, for all I know, uh, they all have uh, French poodles that go home and Spent all evening padding, <laughs> but in the office they got nothing about French poodles about. <laughs> so far, this thing from their minds. All right, final question. So, so the the one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio was there anything that worked for the last forty years, or that might for the next forty years? Well, you know, gold has returned four point something, four point two percent or so. We just did the calculation today because you asked for it as well. Uh, 4%, a little plus, over 40 years. And, you know, it's not much as uh, equity returns go. Certainly, it's not much in the way people have come to expect returns to be. But um, it's not bad for an insurance poli policy that pays mm -hmm. you something. And I think, Consuelo, I think that um, we are nearing a moment of, of recognition and discovery with respect to our monetary institution, with respect to what we call the PhD standard. And I think that, uh, that the price of gold is ultimately the reciprocal of the world's faith in these central bankers and in their monetary judgments and in their monetary models. And if the world decides that um, uh, they do not trust the people in whom they have lodged a great deal, perhaps an excess of trust, they'll be looking around for alternative monetary um, uh, media, storehouses of monetary value, and I think that gold will have its, a much shinier day than it has had heretofore. That is what is known in the trade as a guess. Uh, that, that is a day, guess that is, is uh, that's, you ask for the fruit of 40 years observation and perhaps some of hope as well in this instance. But um, I would say that the track of monetary evolution is away now from the PhD states, away from the uh, rather unthinking allegiance of so many people to this regime of interest rate manipulation. And if that is indeed the case, and who knows, that gold may uh, do better than it has done. But I think, it, I, th I think it's not a bad thing to have around the house. You know, you want some uh, little gold jewelry. <laughs> you don't have to have it. Say, you can wear some of it. <laughs> but I think, um, so you ask for one thing. I mean, needless to say, there are many things that ought to be in the well-tempered portfolio. You ought to have that a little bit of a, more than a, a bit of a position in human progress, right? You shouldn't, be, you shouldn't turn your back on the seemingly unstoppable progress of material progress of the human race. I'm not saying social progress or progress in civility, but material progress. Uh, you want to have so some, stocks. Yep. Yes, indeed. And you want to have some exposure to this marvel we call used to call when it was a thing compound interest. And let us say that interest rates go to five or six or seven, and they pause there for 20, 10 or 20 years. That was the way of the 1946 to 
81 bear market bonds, well, you'll be earning reinvested income on a rather repaying number, 5 or 6%, 7%. So you want some exposure to compound interest. And perhaps that's coming as well. But, you know, we, we can't know. We can't know. Jim Grant, thank you so much for devoting so much of your time here to WealthTrack. What a privilege and a pleasure it has been, Consuelo. And congratulations on 40 years of grants. And, and, and we'll, we'll revisit the, you know, gold, good guess in, on your 50th. <laughs> <laughs> See you then. Thanks, Jim. Okay. Thank you, Consuelo. Bye. At the close of every wealth truck, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is read Jim Grant's writings whenever and wherever you can. Grant's Interest Rate Observer is a must read for the upper echelons of professional investors who willingly spring for the nearly $1,500 annual subscription. As a now retired top rated global fund manager told me, he can find just about all the information he needs to personally invest online. But the one subscription he's kept is Grant's because it is irreplaceable. However, you can find editorials and articles by the prolific James Grant online. And he has written nine books to consider. Several are financial histories. One award winner, The Forgotten Depression 1921, The Crash That Cured Itself, is a favorite. As we have over our 19 seasons, we will continue to have Grant on as a regular guest on WealthTrack. Well, next week, choosing the right mutual funds, Russ Kinnell, Morningstar's mutual fund maven, will tell us how to do it and what's in his personal portfolio. In this week's extra feature, Jim Grant's prodigious output as a journalist, editor, and historian, how does he do it? We'll find out. For those of you up to speed on social media, please follow us on Facebook and our YouTube channel. Thank you so much for watching. We are grateful for your presence. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.